This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Karen O'Hanlon Court, welcoming you to this Bitesize Bio web seminar, which today is sponsored by Luminera. Whether you require higher sensitivity for fluorescence imaging or color reproduction that matches exactly what you see in the eyepiece, Luminera offers a wide portfolio of cameras that are compatible with any microscope and come complete with image analysis software and a four-year warranty. Today's presentation is titled Optocardiography, Optical Mapping of Cardiac Physiology and is being presented by Dr. Igor Ekimov, Professor and Chairman at the Department of Biomedical Engineering at George Washington University. Dr. Igor Ekimov is Chairman of the Department of Biomedical Engineering and the Director of the Cardiac Imaging Laboratory an NIH-funded cardiovascular research and engineering laboratory, which studies the physiological and biophysical mechanisms of cardiovascular disease and develops novel therapies for heart diseases with emphasis on heart rhythm disorders. In 2008, Dr. Efimov co-founded Cardiolan Incorporated to develop low-energy cardioversion therapy with a primary focus on atrial fibrillation. In 2016, Dr. Efimov co-founded Cardioform to develop novel percutaneous and implantable devices based on technology of conformal electronics. Dr. Efimov earned his master's in science and PhD from Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology in 1986 and 1992 respectively, and completed his postdoctoral training at the University of Pittsburgh from 1992 to 1994. He served on the faculty of the Cleveland Clinic Foundation from 1994 to 2000, and Case Western Reserve University from 2000 to 2004 in Cleveland, Ohio, and Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri from 2004 to 2015, prior to joining the George Washington University in 2015 as the inaugural chairman of its new BME department. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation, so please type any questions that you have into the questions box which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Igor at the end. The recording of the webinar will be available at bit.ly forward slash optocardiography. So now over to you, Igor, for the presentation. Uh, good morning. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Bitesize Bio, for this uh, excellent opportunity to present uh, uh, new developments in this really exciting technology, which we would like to uh, name now as optocardiography. Uh, it, it is known in the literature as fluorescence optical imaging or optical mapping and many other uh, names. But what it is in reality is optical recording of uh, cardiac activity and not only electrical activity, but also many other modalities. So this is the uh, outline of, uh, of my lecture. And uh, uh, let me move on to this uh, really beautiful uh, murals, which are uh, those of you who are fortunate to visit uh, Institute of Cardiology in Mexico City in Mexico could, can watch this on the walls. Uh, these are murals uh, which were commissioned to famous uh, uh, artist Diego Rivera. And Diego Rivera was asked, uh, was commissioned to paint history of cardiology. And uh, all the characters on these uh, beautiful murals are real cardiologists and scientists contributed to the development of technology, of the ideas uh, of science uh, in cardiology. And I would like to um, just spend some time on this particular little corner you see now outlined with yellow box. So these are the uh, individuals who developed electrocardiography. I will focus on it on the next slide. Uh, so as you can see here, there are two major contributors, William Eindhoven, uh, who essentially is the inventor of electrocardiography, uh, and Thomas Lewis, who is really uh, the one who took full advantage of this technology and put it to, to work and described every major uh, heart rhythm disorder using electrocardiography and published his seminal uh, work uh, book on uh, the registration of the heartbeat, which uh, was published three times during his lifetime and most definitive uh, volume was published in uh, 1925. I have a copy of this and it's a really incredible book written so many years ago, almost 100 years ago, but uh, it's still fresh, it's still very important and still very interesting and it's still exactly the way electrocardiography is applied now clinically. 
So you can see on the right that back in the days of Eindhoven and Thomas Lewis, in order to conduct the recording of electrocardiogram, you have to put essentially both of your hands in a bucket with salt water and also your left foot in a, in a bucket with the salt water. These were the electrodes. Now, of course, electrodes are somewhat better, uh, and the uh, um, electronics, which is uh, built into electrocardiography, is also more sophisticated. But in, in reality, we are still recording the same electrocardiogram clinically. So this is how it looked like back in, uh, in, uh, as published by Thomas Lewis. So on the bottom, you can see cl classical lead one electrocardiogram, which is a, has a P wave, QRS complex, and a T wave. And above, you can see what is known as injury potential or monophasic action potential. This is how, again, was recorded back in 1925 and before. Um, using electrical techniques, uh, we can also map electrical activity. For that, we have to instrument, essentially, an animal or put it on the surface of a human heart. Uh, and we can do it up to 1,000 electrodes or so. And we can get a pretty accurate picture of how action potentials originate and propagate throughout the heart but it's very difficult to achieve much higher resolution uh, as compared to what is offered by optical technique. So optical technique, optical means for recording a transmembrane potential. The idea of that was conceived and expressed by Larry Cohen, shown in this interesting photograph where he is depicted with his uh, students. Uh, they were students, of course, many years ago before this photograph was taken. All of them are uh, legendary contributors to optical uh, recordings of action potential, calcium, and many other markers. And Larry Cohen had this interesting vision back in the days, and he said that we wish to find a molecule with a large change in fluorescence, in, in meaning in response to transmembrane potential. Such a probe could provide a powerful technique for measuring membrane potential in systems where, for reasons of scale, topology, or complexity, the use of electrodes would be inconvenient or impossible. What he meant by that is if you're studying, for example, brain with a very complex mix of axons and uh, various neurons and other cells, it's very hard to grasp behavior of such a complex organ with several microelectrodes. You have to have numerous sites for recording transmembrane potential, and you do not know a priori where those sites are. So his vision was if we have such a molecule, we can stain brain with voltage-sensitive dye and use high-resolution camera to actually image action potentials, and then we can make sense how action potentials uh, originate and propagate through, throughout the neuronal network. And th that was the uh, really incredible idea which uh, altered the way we do science, not only in neuroscience, uh, where Larry Cohen belonged with his students, but also in cardiology. In fact, arguably, it made much more impact in cardiology. So one important part of biophotonic imaging uh, as shown in this picture, is that it spans several uh, scales, okay? so several anatomical scales and physiological scales. So on the right, you can see how electrocardiogram was recorded in uh, by Thomas Lewis. It was taken from his book. Next, uh, you, you see the uh, movie, which is basically uh, ventricular tachycardia recorded with panoramic imaging. I will spend time describing what it is in the, in the rabbit heart, which has a myocardial infarction. Then uh, you go down the scale, you, you can see how tissue can be recorded uh, using, of course, uh, immunofluorescence or a single cell. And then we arrive all the way down to a single protein. It's, of course, not fluorescence, but uh, three out of five of these scales can be tested and probed and, and recorded with very high resolution fluorescence imaging. So, uh, so essentially, fluorescence imaging uh, has, an, or an optical imaging in general, has truly unique. Uh, combination of, of competencies when you can do uh, functional imaging, such as, for example, optical imaging of electrical activity with voltage-sensitive dyes, or a number of other probes. You can also uh, conduct recordings of in a, a membrane potential of mitochondria, or you can record calcium inside the cells or cyclic AMP inside the cell. So this is all goes under the optical mapping of electrical and other physiological parameters. Next, you can also do structural imaging uh, using, for example, optical coherence tomography or some novel techniques such as uh, photoacoustic tomography, which combines optical and ultrasound. And you can see example here on the right, uh, optical coherence tomography applied to a beating embryonic heart uh, of a mouse. And you can see the 3D rendering of a beating heart. You can do essentially the whole cardiac mechanics. And finally, you can do also molecular imaging with immunofluorescence. So you can see on the left, this is a marker of conduction system of a developing rabbit heart. 
and you can see already uh, origins of sinus node, uh, conduction system, and AV node in such small heart. And in the middle, optical mapping demonstrates that uh, this heart, which has not yet completed septation, it's really early in the stage of development. It's already uh, uh, already has possesses a functional conduction system because activation. Uh, excitation of the heart originates from the apex of the ventricles, meaning that Purkinje network already delivered the impulse all the way to the bottom of the heart. So unique uh, characteristics of fluorescence optical imaging versus other imaging modalities are, first, selectivity. You can really excite and sense a signal in a very complex mix, mixture of molecular species and functional states. You can design a sensor for a particular phosphorylation site or transmembrane potential or presence or absence of a particular protein and can uh, sense this uh, in a very complex system. And nothing like that can be done, for example, by ultrasound or MRI or uh, com computed tomography. Uh, so sensitivity, as I said already, uh, is, is very high. You can do it with a very small number of molecules down to literally a handful of molecules. You can already sense presence of those molecules. It also has an unprecedented, very high temporal resolution, down to 10 nanoseconds. In fact, early work by Windisch from Austria, uh, from Graz, demonstrated that optical technique recording action potential is actually better and faster as compared to microelectrode. So, so the frequency response of optical technique is superior compared to microelectrodes. There's also high spatial resolution, novel methods of super resolution, for example, move this uh, spatial resolution down to already tens of nanometers. With the advent of genetically encoded fluorescence reporters, now we have a number of tools to actually create transgenic animals or knock in certain genes and, and uh, have essentially genetic reporters for transmembrane potential, for calcium, for phosphorylation uh, states, for interaction between different molecules, and also it all can be done with optical recordings. And finally, uh, we can do it in a multi-parametric fashion, meaning that you can take the same organ of the same system and deliver a number of different markers or reporter genes and uh, uh, simultaneously record, for example, transmembrane potential, intracellular calcium, uh, state of mitochondria, and cyclic AMP. So let's move on to fluorescence imaging basic principles. So basic principle from physics point of view is rather simple. So when uh, essentially your fluorophore is residing at the ground state, which is shown here on the left, as uh, uh, S sub, uh, sub zero. Um, so it's, when it's excited by uh, absorbing a photon, transition number one, it will basically go from ground state to excited state, uh, and which is labeled as prime. And then uh, during second transition, it will relax a little bit to intermediate state by emitting a very long wavelength photon, which we do not sense. And then from uh, state, the first state, it will drop down back to ground state, transition number three. And this is essentially the photon uh, which will be emitted and we will sense. This is what we essentially call fluorescence. Uh, transition number one will be excitation of fluorescence. It requires uh, uh, more energy, which means essentially somewhat uh, lower wavelength uh, in your excitation spectrum. And then transition number three is relaxation and emission of uh, uh, output of fluorescence, which will be lower energies uh, and meaning also uh, longer wavelength. Like in this case, uh, this example shows spectra absorption and uh, fluorescence spectra of a voltage-sensitive dye. So there is a, a well-known physics phenomenon known Stokes shift because of the difference in, the, in these two energy transitions. So we take advantage of the Stokes shift by separating uh, emission or excitation spectrum uh, and excitation spectrum, and we can basically separate these two peaks uh, in our detection uh, algorithm. The general principle is very, very simple. So you have a light source shown here on the left. Then you have a filter, which basically will reject mostly unnecessary light, let's say infrared light, etc. Then you have light, which comes basically to your fluorescence specimen, uh, excites fluorescence. And then uh, you have to deal with two different uh, types of light. One is unnecessary light, which is essentially unabsorbed, uh, in this case, blue light, excitation light, which you don't need, you don't want to, you want to get rid of it, so your sensor does not have a noise generated by this light. And you have fluorescence, which is your useful light, which is your signal you, you want to record. After that, you put essentially a barrier filter or system which will reject unabsorbed blue light from your excitation beam, and only will uh, transmit fluorescence light, useful light, and you will put uh, a, de a detector. It can be your eye or it can be a more sophisticated detector. 
So there are a number of various light sources, historically mercury lamps, xenon lamps, halogen lamps. Uh, they are all expensive and have pluses and minuses. But it's safe to say that now we can pretty much forget about all those historical light sources and uh, with the development of very powerful and very well-controlled light-emitting diodes, most of the fluorescence recordings are now done with specific light-emitting diodes. They are much cheaper, usually by two orders of magnitude, and also they are very, very powerful. You can really take advantage of this new technology. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Filters also can be designed in various ways. There are cheap filters, colored glass filters, uh, but they have fairly poor characteristics separating different wavelengths. There are interference filters uh, designed also very precisely down to single nanometers. And then there are different uh, uh, dichroic mirrors. Dichroic mirrors, uh, so critical uh, uh, Advent Discovery, which actually was awarded a Nobel Prize. It allows you to, uh, when an excitation filter is passed here, uh, it allows to reflect light uh, of one wavelength, but transmit light of, an, of everything below this wavelength. So essentially, the transmission spectra shown here on the right showed that, let's say, in this critical um, um, wavelength, light below this wavelength, all of this light will be re reflected, and light above will be transmitted. What means essentially it means is that you you can basically transmit unnecessary light which you do not want to go to your uh, sensor or your, your specimen, and then uh, necessary light will go only into your specimen. So this allows you on the way back essentially again do the same, uh, and then your detector will only sense uh, useful light. And then uh, more recent uh, technological developments allowed to have a sandwich filters when you basically have sandwich of different filters with different uh, a bandwidth for uh, passing light, and then you have essentially in this particular case for work of uh, Polydvar et al. is that you can have essentially transmission at 405 nanometers, 488 nanometers, 561 nanometers, and then you have also different spectra for um, fluorescence, so which allows you to measure multiple parameters at the same time. So uh, then system essentially shown here how it can be arranged. You have a light source. Uh, you have optics for bringing light, focusing it appropriately. Then you have a barrier filter, so excitation filter. You have dichroic filter. Then you have another lens to uh, focus on your sample. And then uh, upon uh, emitting fluorescence, it will be collected by the same lens, will go up, will be transmitted by dichroic mirror, uh, and go through another emission filter, and then will be sensed by uh, a number of different sensors. It could be a photodiode array, it could be a a CCD camera, or more recently, CMOS-type cameras. We have also a wealth of various sensors. So these are just some examples. Voltage-sensitive dye, uh, arguably one of the most frequently used currently in cardiology, is dye for aneps. Uh, it's a dye designed by uh, Leslie Lowe from University of Connecticut. It's a wonderful dye, very sensitive, very robust. However, no new developments by several groups now seem to uh, surpass the uh, fractional change in fluorescence, and perhaps in, in the near future we'll see some more, more dyes. There's a, uh, also a family of dyes for calcium sensing, so essentially you can stain tissue and sense changes in the intracellular calcium uh, uh, during action potential, and can, that can be done also simultaneously with action potential if you separate the spectra uh, of these two dyes. And more recently, a number of other dyes have been developed, for example, uh, to send cyclic AMP, which is very interesting uh, in studies of, uh, uh, for example, uh, autonomic nervous system control of the heart function and many other studies related to autonomics and the adrenergic system. I'll give you an example how sensing is done uh, on the uh, principles uh, on calcium ratiometry. So if you look at the spectra of calcium, uh, so if you put in QVET different concentration of calcium and look at fluorescence excitation, you can see that uh, there are several uh, distinct different, different bands in the spectra. In the middle, I'm, I'm pointing right now, which is lambda 2, it's called isosbestic point. No matter what calcium concentration you put in your system, fluorescence does not change. Uh, this particular point is useful because it can be used as a re reference point. If you go to the left from it, for example, at wavelength lambda 1, when you increase calcium concentration, uh, your uh, signal also increases. But if you go to the, to the right from this point, uh, lambda 3, 
when you increase calcium concentration, signal actually decreases. It is useful because it allows you to overcome certain artifacts, which are unfortunately present in the fluorescence recordings. One of those artifacts is due to photobleaching or washout or internalization of the dye. When you're recording continuously for a long period of time, your signal actually declines, even if you don't have any change in real signal. For example, you can see here on the right, if I'm recording at lambda 2, uh, with uh, uh, changes in calcium concentration and injection of calcium at this point, there is no change. However, there is a drift because of photobleaching and washout of the dye. If you look at lambda 1 over here, so you can see that there is a, first you have little drift because of photobleaching and washout, but then you have increase in calcium concentration, and it continues again with uh, photobleaching. If you look at lambda 3, it's an inverted signal. It's upside down. It's again, photobleaching is the same, but signal is going down. However, if you take a ratio, for example, lambda 1 over lambda 3 or lambda 1 over lambda 2, you will get rid of this artifact due to photobleaching. You have stable recording for a very long time. You have changes in calcium caused by injection of calcium here. And again, you have stable after that when calcium already is steady state. So this ratioometry allows you to calibrate the signal and eliminate or reduce artifacts. Very important technique. This is an example how such technique is used in recordings of action potentials. So a voltage-sensitive dye has very similar spectra like I showed you before on calcium. So if you're recording, for example, exciting fluorescence uh, in this uh, range of uh, uh, wavelength between 532 and 554 nanometers with dye 4 you'll you'll record signal like shown here. It has, during upstroke, it has upward change in the signal. Then during uh, plateau phase and downstroke, unfortunately, because of motion artifact, because of beating heart, it will be distorted like this. However, if you're recording in a, uh, not in green, like in this case, but in the red part of the spectrum, in 641 or 663, your upstroke is inverted, it goes down, and, but your drift is still the same polarity, as you can see here, because my motion artifact. And if you make, uh, uh, if you compute the ratio of these two signals, you, you will get undistorted signal shown here, uh, and this is essentially waveform you're looking for. Uh, so this work was done by Steve nicely several years ago, and it's used now in the field to, to reduce photobleaching, post-artifacts, drift artifacts, but also motion artifacts. So how do you design uh, an optical system? So these are some elements. So essentially, you'll have to, of course, provide a first physiological component where you keep a cardiac specimen or heart, whole heart or uh, cell culture alive and perfused and oxygenated then you have a sensor you uh, you have a data acquisition system and a computer and more specifically shown here below uh, between sensor and, and the tissue chamber you have all these optics i just described before including lens which focuses on this sample including uh, dichroic mirror and including filters uh, excitation filter which comes from the light source and emission filter which goes into the sample and then uh, you design those filters based on your specific spectra. In this case, for diforan apps, typically we'll take about uh, 520 nanometers uh, filter for excitation, which is green light. We excite this dye with green light. Uh, and again, we can do it very easily with uh, light-emitting diode. And we also uh, collect fluorescence above 600 or so nanometers, which will be red light. And this is basically how it's done with those particular filters shown in this diagram. So I'm not going to dwell too much on this particular uh, uh, table. If you have questions, I'll be happy to answer uh, online or later via email. But basically, in deciding how to create a system, you, you have to decide how to deliver light. You can do elimination of the whole preparation or just a single spot with a laser, and laser can be uh, essentially moving around and can be uh, scanning the, the system. Then how you do light collection? There are many different types of sensors, photodiodes, a charge couple devices, CCD camera photocathode or CMOS cameras, and then you can have a number of designs of the systems shown here. So when you uh, collect data, you have to also keep in mind interpretation of the data is uh, uh, really vulnerable to various sources of extrinsic noise artifacts uh, and a decrease in signal-to-noise ratio. So these are listed here. For example, uh, there is a, a list of sources of noise which one has to fight, including short noise, which is a quantum statistical noise caused by emission, uh, uh, physics of emission uh, from the um, fluorophore. There is a dark noise, 
there's extraneous noise, typically 60 cycle caused by, by essentially power in the wall. The ground loops have to be eliminated. There are a number of uh, motion artifacts, including uh, which can be uh, combated by mechanical restriction of the sample, or chemically, there are a number of drugs to do to immobilize the heart. We are currently primarily using blebistatin, which is a safe, um, completely immobilizing the sample without affecting electrophysiology. Then there is also a reduction of signal-to-noise ratio caused by uh, experimental conditions. So all of that is described in several publications. I will uh, list it here, but also uh, uh, on my last slide. So now I would like to go through how to analyze the signals. When you're recording the signals, so you have shown here from our paper, a recent publication in American Journal of Physiology, you essentially excite fluorescence, you collect it, you sense it, sense it with your detector, which is a typically two-dimensional detector. You get basically a three-dimensional data set where you have X and Y, and time will be Z. And then uh, how do you actually uh, develop meaningful maps from that? So first of all, you filter the signal, then you identify various characteristics such as activation time, which is time of this upstroke here, or recovery time when it's time of the downstroke of the section potential, and you can compute various vectors, how the wave propagates, shown here uh, as, a, as an example on this picture. How do we actually do that? Um, so first of all, this is an image of the, of the heart. So we identify position of the heart by thresholding, and we connect it. We have several um, steps of the algorithm, which basically will remove, uh, let's say, electrode projection, in this case also atria, uh, and they'll create essentially mask by which you only focus on uh, your, your heart. So after that, you do spatial filtering described here, which will uh, reduce noise, and it depends on uh, the species that, from which you are recording here, examples from the mouse, from the rabbit, and from a human heart. And different degree of spatial filtering will improve uh, signal quality, but of course, will also reduce spatial resolution. Next very important consideration is temporal filtering. Uh, there are several types of filters, and one has to be very, very careful selecting the filter because filtering itself can introduce uh, artifacts. For example, uh, um, unidirectional filtering shifts signals to the right, so changing temporal assignment of different complexes. Well, therefore, it has to be bidirectional, going essentially uh, from past to the future and then back. Another important uh, issue is filters cannot be unstable. You have to look at stability of the filters. Unstable filters create artifacts. For example, in this case, you have an alteration in the plateau phase of action potential uh, or uh, appearance of DED or EED, which actually can be misinterpreted as biological phenomenon, but in fact, it is not. It is, it is an inappropriately applied filter. So in this paper, we uh, propose appropriate filtering techniques shown here how they can be uh, designed properly, and you can get very clean filtered data without introducing these unfortunate artifacts. Uh, next important consideration is the drift of the signal. Like I said already, because of photobleaching or some other effects, signal drift uh, and there is no steady uh, appearance of resting potential. Therefore, we, we usually compute average and it will subtract it, and then you essentially come up with a steady signal shown here in blue. Another one is uh, normalization. This is recording not of transparent potential, but of light. Therefore, um, because of an even illumination of the heart, an even staining of the heart signal uh, amplitude will be very different. You can see here, fluorescence uh, output in the middle red, red light shows much stronger signal compared to the periphery, uh, which could be two orders of magnitude difference in amplitude. So this is how signals look like before normalization. So it has to be normalized. And then only after that, you can essentially conduct more sophisticated analysis. And then uh, there are a number of algorithms how we compute, for example, activation map, meaning we line up all upstrokes of action potentials. We compute first derivative, find time at which each region was activated, and then we'll build it as a, a contour map or isochronal map. In this case, color represents time. We stimulate it at this point one. And then it propagated from one to two to three to four. It took about 35 milliseconds to excite this uh, rabbit heart. Next important uh, characteristic of cardiac excitation is duration of action potential, which corresponds to QT interval on the electrocardiogram. And you can see we basically compute duration as shown here. And these are maps of uh, action potential duration recorded at 50% recovery and action potential duration recorded at 80% recovery. So it shows heterogeneity of action potential duration throughout the heart. And then a more sophisticated analysis can be also done from activation maps. We can compute vector map, how basically this activation propagated in terms of uh, direction of 
uh, of activation. Uh, and finally, a very uh, important method which is currently used not only in basic laboratory but also in clinical settings is called uh, phase mapping. In this case, we take signal and we also take Hilbert transform of the same signal. Then we build it on this phase map, we identify angle for each point, and this angle corresponds to phase. And phase uh, can be depicted as, as follows. It's very sensitive. It can uh, very easily detect, for example, phase singularity, which corresponds to the eye of the tornado uh, during re-entry. So when you have re-entrant arrhythmia, it is driven by a rotor, which has an eye, and this eye can be tracked by uh, tracking phase singularity. So how do we basically build a real-time system, and how do we apply it? So here's an example how such system can be applied to study sinus node. So this is rabbit, rabbit heart preparation. We are focusing at a small area where we expect sinus node is supposed to be, but obviously in this preparation we cannot see sinus node. It is not labeled by anything. But if we uh, conduct recordings of action potentials and visualize propagation of action potentials, you can very easily see site of origin. This is exactly where uh, it, it originates, show, as shown here. Then this sample can be studied uh, with immunofluorescence. For example, in this case, we did staining for CHAT, uh, which is acetyltransferase staining for uh, parasympathetic nerves, or tyrosine hydroxylase, which is TH for sympathetic nerves, and for example, correlating with where we identified sinus node location shown in green box, we see six-fold increase in, the, in nerve density for both sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. It can also be combined, uh, electrical mapping will be combined with optical coherence tomography, which allows you to track orientation of the cells uh, in the same structure. So this is a recording in a more complex system in the, in the do dog sinus node, in which case optical recording is done across the whole wall of sinus node, which contains sinus node as well as atrial tissue. As a result, optical signal actually contains two components, one component from sinus node itself, which is in the depth of such tissue, and another component for, from atrial tissue, which is intervening layer uh, of atrial myocardium. Therefore, analysis of such signals has to be done very carefully, and two two components have to be separated and then can be visualized very nicely, as shown here. Uh, this work uh, done in my laboratory by Vadim Fedorov shows that sinus node in the dog heart actually has two exit pathways. Excitation starts in the sinus node, but then it actually exits into the superior pathway, as shown here, or into the inferior pathway, as shown here. And this corresponds, uh, as we found histologically, to distinct structures connecting sinus node to the atrial myocardium. Interestingly, the same exact phenomenon we found also in the human heart. So this is an example of uh, mapping of sinus node in the human heart, and the same was identified, as you can see in the top map, this superior exit pathway. So it originates right here and then exits actually in this point, a superior pathway. However, if you look at the bottom map, it again originates in the same spot, but exits in the inferior pathway shown right here. You can watch a DFDT map, it's more precise right here. So sinus node in the human heart is also coupled to atrial myocardium with several exit pathways. So now we recently started a very interesting project in which we take uh, human myocardium, we make slices from it, as shown here. Uh, this particular slice was kept in culture for 21 days. It's about one by one centimeter in, uh, in, in diameter, in, in size, and about 300 to 400 micron in thickness. This allows us to do uh, genetic manipulation in human, but ex vivo without subjecting, obviously, uh, human patients to any risks. So essentially, potentially, you can create a transgenic human approach ex vivo, but with real human myocardium. So this slide shows pictures from our recent paper in uh, scientific uh, reports. Uh, actually, it's incorrect. It says unpublished. It's published already in scientific reports, where we show that you can record very high-definition map of action potentials, uh, you can look at activation map, in this case, called by, uh, caused by field stimulation, uh, action potential duration. It uh, responds properly to adrenergic stimulation. Uh, and we also compared these small slices uh, against uh, intact veg preparations, where you have a big chunk of freshly isolated tissue, and you can see uh, they are completely in correspondence. Basically, there's no um, adverse effect of sectioning and or culturing of these slices. So you can culture them for a long time. And we can also record. Uh, action potentials and calcium transients in the same tissues, which allows studies of excitation contraction coupling in human, uh, in real human tissue. 
this is another example of uh, uh, recent development of the technology, which is a, uh, essentially panoramic imaging of a human left ventricular wedge preparation. So what you see on the left, it's a, a segment of human myocardium donated to, to us from a transplant program, which was coronary perfused. You can see cannula here, and then uh, placed in this tissue chamber shown on the right, and then four cameras uh, focusing on epicardium, on endocardium, and on two opposite sides, which are section, um, transmural sections, allow you to follow very complex electrophysiological uh, dynamics during normal excitation, as well as during ventricular fibrillation. So next map shows example of that. This is during ventricular fibrillation, re-entrant activity in the human heart. As you, and you can see at different time points, at uh, 210, 220, 130, and 40 milliseconds. These are four different projections, which I showed you from four different cameras. These are the recordings of the transmembrane potential, action potentials. These are recordings of phase. And these are recordings of phase singularities. And you can see this is a driver right here, which caused this ventricular fibrillation shown very nicely on the phase map. So in this particular case, you can see driver very nicely on the epicardium, uh, but not on the endocardium. So this particular uh, uh, reentrant activity was not uh, intramural. Another example uh, of so-called dual or transillumination imaging is when you have, um, in this case, a ship atrium. This was, work was done by Sarah Goodbrod uh, with, with me in Bordeaux, uh, in France, where we would isolate atrium of the ship heart, place it in the perfusion chamber as shown here, and then place in the, uh, uh, this perfusion chamber has two windows, one on epicardial side and one on endocardial side. And with these two cameras, you can record electrical activity on opposite sides. And uh, uh, such recordings allow you to follow, for example, a uh, map of atrial fibrillation. And again, in this particular study, we showed that in some instances, atrial fibrillation is a, a rotor driving atrial fibrillation, like shown here, for example. But it is not uh, immediately evident on the opposite side uh, of the preparation. So again, it could, not, it could be not necessarily intramural. So, and, and more recently, this is a, still unpublished, but we are planning to submit this publication very, very soon. It will be the first open source software and hardware panoramic imaging system. What it means, essentially, we will uh, give away uh, for free. It will be available in, uh, as an open source software package as well as an open source hardware package, meaning that you can actually, what you see all this hardware, except for cameras, of course, and cables, but everything else is, can be printed on a 3D printer, as shown here, including tissue chamber, various holders, this is a uh, holder for heart and uh, for electrocardiography, which will insert it inside the chamber. All the posts and holders for cameras, for uh, light sources. And with four cameras, one can reconstruct electrical activity in the uh, perfused, lung and dog perfused, or working heart uh, of rabbit, of mouse, on, of rat, dog, human, and many other um, mammalian and, and non-mammalian species. So this is how reconstruction is done. In this case, we just stimulated heart and you can see excitation already spread a little bit from the excitation site at 11 milliseconds. And then at 20 milliseconds, it spread already more. We rotate this to uh, projection so you can see from opposite sides. Then at, uh, nine, at 31 milliseconds, it spread even more. Again, we rotated heart a little bit more. And then uh, excitation essentially invaded already half of the surface of the heart and then collided on the opposite side from the pacing side. You see this is 180 degrees from the original orientation. You can basically follow the entire pattern of excitation throughout the heart uh, and uh, will not miss any events of excitation, which is very important when you study arrhythmia. And we can represent this data in 3D movie, as I show in the next slide, or you can unwrap it in the traditional uh, geographic projections. Uh, and you can see here the two of those projections shown here for the same data set. So this is how the same data looks like uh, as a movie. You can see normal excitation based beat of the rabbit. So you can see frozen uh, in time, and this is the end. So first projection from the back of the heart, where uh, two, two waves collide. And now we go back. Uh, for, this is projection from the uh, space inside. Uh, and on the right, you can see movie which corresponds to ventricular fibrillation in the rabbit heart. You can see, essentially, uh, very complex uh, dynamics, but there is a rotor uh, rotating in this area. So what is the future? One of the holy grails we still uh, did not achieve is that the fact that heart is beating when you're recording uh, electrical or other activities, and this is, causes, unfortunately, uh, motion artifacts. 
If it's mild motion artifact, it can be removed or reduced by ratiometry, but unfortunately, it's not always the case. Uh, currently, in collaboration with um, expert in structured li uh, light imaging, uh, Professor Song Zhang from uh, Purdue University, we're developing new technique. And you, show, you see here on the right, uh, fibrillating heart recorded with such technique where we can precisely, very accurately record mechanics of the heart. We did not immobilize this heart. And now this mechanics can be fed back into the uh, algorithm for reconstructing action potentials if you're recording also fluorescence at the same time. And this can help uh, basically uh, recording various parameters such as transmembrane potential, calcium transients, metabolic parameters, cyclic AMP, and on and on in a beating heart and um, uh, remove essentially uh, mathematically, computationally immobilize the heart instead of uh, uh, doing it by chemical or pharmaceutical uh, excitation contraction and couplers. And another big uh, area which is being developed by several groups, in particular by Professor Emilia Encheva, who is right here at George Washington University in our department. She developed an approach which is called all optical control of the heart using optogenetics, which means essentially she can stimulate the heart at will uh, as well as sense. Uh, and all, all of that is done optically, which allows non-contact interrogation of uh, high throughput, many, many dishes with IPS-derived cardiomyocytes or other uh, types of cardiac preparations. So let me uh, conclude. So this is, uh, uh, I'd like to acknowledge obviously all my students shown here, in particular Jacqueline Brennan, uh, uh, Yun Chao, uh, Chao Yiken, Chris Gloshat, who developed panoramic imaging, Kedar Eras, who showed uh, this uh, panoramic imaging of left ventricular veg preparation. Uh, also, I would like to acknowledge our undergraduates, Brianna, uh, Sofian and Shubham, who developed uh, various aspects of panoramic imaging and wrote, uh, Shubham wrote uh, actually a manual how to do panoramic imaging, which we will make available to all users in our community. Uh, so there are collaborators, support from National Institutes of Health, La Duke Foundation, and the Alisan and Terry Collins Endowment, uh, uh, who endowed the chair, which helped us to develop this technology. I would like also to leave you with a list of publications. They are all available online including uh, two uh, pay video papers from a Journal of Visual Experiment, where you can watch precisely how staining, uh, dissection, and recordings are done in the mouse and rabbit heart. And also, I would like to point to this paper by Jacob Lafner, which actually is an uh, open source uh, software available already for a number of years and very popular. Many groups are using it. It's a software for processing and analyzing cardiac optical mapping data obtained with potentiometric dyes. Now we are preparing a new paper, which will be submitted soon, where we will extend it to multi-parametric analysis and to panoramic analysis. Thank you very much, and I will be uh, happy to answer any questions you might have. Thank you, Igor. That was an excellent presentation. Um, we do have a few questions from the audience. If anybody else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right-hand side of your screen. So the first question is from Elena. And this is, can we do in vivo optical mapping? Uh, excellent question. Uh, so I, I'm really happy to say that uh, finally, yes, we, do, we can. So, there, uh, so several groups already reported uh, recordings in open chest, uh, small animals. Uh, and uh, basically, a number of dice which I mentioned, and also some novel dice, uh, they uh, can be indeed delivered uh, intravenously, uh, can be delivered to the heart. Uh, and can be mapped, but but you have to have a direct line of sight. You have to open the chest in order to see the heart. Mm. However, um, now new opportunities uh, developed. One of them, you can create a transgenic uh, animal, and a transgenic animal can be uh, essentially encoded uh, with a voltage sensor or calcium sensor, and such transgenic animals also can be imaged in vivo. So we're currently working with a mouse, which we obtained from uh, Michael Kotlikov from um, uh, Cornell University, who developed a GCAM P8 mouse. This, this is a calcium sensor, uh, which was knocked in uh, under control of the promoter expressed in the sinus node in the conduction system. So we actually developing currently in vivo method for recording optical activity, uh, electrical activity, calcium activity in in vivo mouse. Wow, that's very fascinating. <laughs> Um, we have another question, which I have a feeling I know the answer to now. It's from Adam. Um, can optical mapping be used clinically? I guess it's not quite there, or is it? Well, uh, it's not there yet. However, uh, the good news is uh, several years ago, um, a group from Chicago, which I forgot the name, I'd be happy to provide the reference later, 
found that a commonly used fluorescent marker, which is used in surgery, uh, commonly, uh, essentially any vascular surgeon has this particular marker. Uh, it's a fluorescent marker for vasculature. It's injected in order to see the perfusion bed in any organs, and it's completely safe. It's used for tens of years clinically. It's, of course, FDA approved, uh, has no adverse effects whatsoever. It turns out that this is not just fluorescent marker of blood vessels, which you can just see uh, during surgery, uh, but it's also voltage sensitive. So this particular compound was shown to be uh, um, sensitive to transmembrane potential in neurons and heart. Several papers already followed the initial report. Uh, signal quality is not yet uh, as good as with uh, some more uh, specifically developed sensors, but it opens an opportunity at least for clinical sensing. And uh, I believe that in the next five, maybe 10 years, uh, uh, this compound or something, some similar compounds will be developed for uh, electrophysiological mapping in vivo in patients, which can guide, uh, for example, ablation procedures when a um, catheter is inserted inside the heart. And it's uh, exceedingly difficult to pinpoint the site of origin of arrhythmia with relatively low resolution uh, um, probe, which is now used for uh, mapping electrical activity in the heart. Okay, thank you for that. Um, so it sounds like it's it's not impossible, <laughs> but it's not there yet. Um, that that would be fantastic if it if it could be used in the clinic. I think it would give a lot of new opportunities. Um, we have another question from Alex. Um, how difficult would it be to establish uh, an optical mapping system in a lab that didn't have expertise in engineering? Also, excellent question. So basically, currently, we are really at the juncture when um, it is possible. So 10 years ago, for example, every lab which did optical mapping um, had essentially in-house engineering expertise. Every lab had to develop hardware, had to develop optics, had to develop software. And in fact, every lab had their own software to analyze the signals. And uh, very often, methods were different, and the same signal could have been interpreted differently by different labs. And uh, still now I can see papers from those days when basically, for example, filtering was done and not entirely accurately if someone doesn't have engineering uh, uh, background or digital signal processing background and uh, blindly applies filters which are provided by software not tailored for this particular type of signals, uh, misinterpretation is quite possible. But now it's all changing. First of all, uh, there are several commercially available systems which are currently available and basically they're open box for recording the signals. There's still a problem with anal analyzing the signals. But as I said already, we have published uh, in uh, 2012, uh, Jacob Lafner is the first author from our group. Uh, we published open source uh, software in MATLAB, which is available for download. And we uh, we all constantly in contact with many groups which are using this particular software. Uh, we essentially teach them how to use the software and uh, respond to various questions. And uh, we are about to introduce the next step, which will be not only open source software, we will release a new version of this software, but also open source hardware, meaning that currently you can build completely new, your own system, your specifications by printing on a 3D printer those components which we provide or you design, uh, and then attaching only, you have to buy, of course, uh, CMOS or CCD cameras and light sources from various imaging companies. But all physiological perfusion, holders, uh, alignment, it all can be done using now 3D printable, uh, uh, open source 3D printable hardware. So basically, I believe now it will be possible uh, to do such imaging even in a laboratory which does not possess engineering expertise and does not have in-house software engineers, hardware engineers, and optics engineers. Yeah. Okay, that's great. So then I guess um, the only thing left then is how do we all get trained in optical mapping? Because, I mean, one thing is having the hardware and the software, but are there any training programs or online or... Unfortunately, no. Yeah. yeah, it's a good question. Unfortunately, no. So still the best bet is to really uh, uh, go to one of the labs. There is a number of very uh, sophisticated optical mapping labs in the United States, in Europe, in Japan. Uh, in, now in Australia as well, uh, where you can basically go and spend, you have to spend maybe uh, two weeks, three weeks observing how it's done, uh, looking essentially at every step. There are many small minute steps which are usually not reported in the papers because of restrictions on the size of the paper. Uh, yeah. but, but such minute steps, if, if uh, they're skipped over, can ruin your experiment. How do you isolate the heart? How do you cannulate the heart? How do you stain the heart? 
with voltage sensitive dye or calcium sensitive dye, how you immobilize the heart using blebistatin or cytocalacin D, uh, how you then uh, illuminate the heart, how you align light sources, how you align cameras, all these small steps. Uh, and don't, they don't really require sophistication, but you, you just need to know them. And uh, rediscovering it from scratch is time-consuming and, and really not productive. So the best still is to basically first learn, learn the basics. And uh, there are many nice reviews, including those which I provided uh, in, in this particular slide. And then uh, essentially uh, take software, which we uh, also provided, or some other packages available from the community. And uh, then visit one of the labs, which has the expertise. And uh, after you learn the ropes, you can very easily reproduce this technique in, in your own laboratory. So uh, my, my laboratory taught a number of groups uh, over the last 20 years or so. I'm doing optical mapping since 1992. Uh, mm -hmm. I learned from the first person who actually recorded uh, mm -hmm. uh, optical action potential in the heart, which is the Dr. Guy Salama. My two, two first papers on the list are uh, from his laboratory when I, when I was his postdoc. And yeah. uh, basically, uh, that's the only way really to learn at this point of, by, by experience. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Thank you for that. That pretty much brings us to the end of the session, unless anyone else has any more questions. So. Thank you again, Igor, for a very illuminating presentation and a really great discussion. And thanks also to our sponsor, Luminera. Thank and finally, you. Yes, please go ahead, Igor. Oh, no, I just wanted to thank for organizing it. It's, a, it's an excellent, actually, opportunity to present a coherent lecture on how to do it, because I am constantly bombarded by requests to, to teach optical mapping. And it, so essentially having this resource online will be very helpful to a very, very large cardiovascular community. Yeah, I totally agree. So um, we're very, very grateful <laughs> that you were willing to spend your time doing this presentation for us. And finally, also thank you to the audience for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you have enjoyed the seminar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the seminars page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There, you can also see the other webinars we have lined up for you in Bite Size Bio's webinar festival. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at Luminera and Bite Size Bio. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.